Welcome. In this audio essay, Associate Professor of Anthropology at Aarhus University and Director of the Aarhus University Centre for Environmental Humanities, Heather Ann Swanson, describes the close relationships between oceans and English canals. Swanson invites us to think, what may be noticed if we study oceans from inland waters? A line of research that has grounded her collaboration in Sonia Levy's film, Creatures of the Lines, presented on stage. I leave you now with Heather Ann Swanson. In dialogue with the Blue Multispecies Ethnographies of Oceans and Crisis Group at Aarhus University, our Art Humanities Science Project focuses on introduced aquatic species, particularly those that have been spread through marine transport and their ecological effects. However, it engages topics at the center of ocean worlds from a rather marginal ocean space. From Britain's canals, which are filled predominantly by fresh, not salty water, and which stretch hundreds of kilometers inland, away from the sea. Among its many questions, our project asks, what are the spaces from which to think and study oceans? What might we notice if we study oceans from inland areas? We will come back to the project itself shortly, but first, I want to explain how my previous work on salmon in the North Pacific Ocean has led me to think differently about where oceans might end. In textbook diagrams, rivers beyond their estuaries or deltas are often depicted as having one-way relationships with oceans as freshwater and the substances it carries flow downhill. But rivers are not always so unidirectional. Consider salmon. As fish that spend most of their lives growing and feeding in the ocean, but that return to rivers to spawn, salmon carry substantial quantities of marine-derived nutrients, such as nitrogen and phosphorus, in their tissues and bones. When salmon migrate into rivers and are eaten by other organisms or die after spawning, these nutrients come to fertilize terrestrial ecologies. Through these nutrients, the presence of salmon makes forests more verdant and quick growing. Their invertebrate densities greater and their songbird numbers more substantial. As animals move salmon with their mouths and in their feces, ocean-derived nutrients are spread over a wide terrain. Marine-derived nitrogen is clearly identifiable across large swaths of forests, and along salmon-rich streams, up to 80% of the nitrogen in some trees and shrubs can be of marine origin. In short, salmon bring the ocean into inland watersheds. The sea can be found inside the trunks of trees. Where then does the ocean end, materially and analytically? This question is central to our work on British canals, albeit in a different way. In my research on salmon, it is the patterns of migratory fish that extend the ocean. In the case of canals, 
It is the coupling of political economy, shipping, and aquatic invertebrates. British transportation canals, largely constructed between the 1770s and 1830s, are an ocean story in multiple ways. First, the canals were a project of remaking England's lands and waters so that they would better interface with its practices of oceanic imperialism. Canals were constructed with two primary aims, to connect inland regions to coastal ports and to transport domestic coal to the growing number of factories. Both processes were essential to British imperial economies. The canals transported raw materials on the last leg of their journey from colonies to British factories, brought factories the fossil fuel energy they needed to keep their machine whirring, and facilitated the movement of England's finished goods to ports to be shipped abroad. As the author of a 1792 book on navigation put it, in countries which have the advantages of canals, the old manufacturers are rendered more flourishing and new ones established from day to day. Canals render the countries through which they pass more rich and fertile. The merchants who reside at the ports where they terminate derive very considerable advantages from them as they are enabled by them to export greater quantities of goods from places at a distance from the sea and to supply with ease a greater extent of inland country with the commodities they import from foreign nations. So great has been the effect which these canals and the trade to which they have given birth have had on our industry, population, and resources, that in many instances, they have entirely changed the appearance of the countries through which they pass. It is clear that the canals were built with visions of trade across a vast ocean empire. As one commentator wrote in 1890, the canal system, quote, enabled raw materials to be transported at about one-tenth of what they had formerly cost and facilitated the exchange of commodities between the different parts of the kingdom to an extent previously undreamt of, end quote. To borrow the words of William Cowper, a late 18th century British poet, Britain acted with an image of itself as, quote, a union with the vast terraqueous whole, end quote. It is well known that the practices of British empire led to vast accumulations of wealth among the British elite at the expense of the lives of people in its colonies, as well as those of lower class Brits. An additional and often overlooked consequence of these processes has been the massive transformation of England's fresh waters. Today, Britain is crisscrossed by over 2000 miles of canals. For the most part, these canals are not improved rivers but channels dug specifically for the purpose of transport. Yet they often connect rivers, allowing boats to easily transit between different drainage basins, 
Canals at once disrupt existing aquatic ecologies and create new watercourses that are less lively than the marshy ground they also often drain. One of the ways they upend freshwater environments is by connecting them to distant oceans. Ocean vessels frequently carry organisms from plankton, worms, and algae to clams, mussels, and jellies on their holes and in their ballast water. When they dock at new ports and discharge their water, most of the organisms find conditions in the new place inhospitable and soon die. However, when such dockings and discharges are routine, some organisms invariably survive. Ports are thus frequently ecologically poor sites, places with high levels of industrial pollution and a comparatively small range of highly tolerant species, many introduced organisms among them. With the canal networks, however, introduced organisms do not remain at coastal ports, but are pulled deep into freshwater environments by the movements of smaller boats, as well as by the canal's physical form. Because the canal network connects so many of England's river basin, introduced species are able to quickly spread through them and across the country, displacing others and leading to aquatic worlds with less biodiversity. We want to emphasize that we do not see the spread of introduced species as a simplistic story of aggressive invading organisms. Rather, we see it instead as one of waterscapes remade by the structures of transoceanic imperialism and global shipping. The very form of canals facilitates the proliferation and movement of introduced species. Canals were made for efficient conveyance and commerce, straight with hard banks and routine dredging to keep them navigable. They are also sometimes laced with contaminants from boats, as well as residual pollution from earlier canal side factories. Such conditions are inhospitable to many organisms, creating worlds where only a limited number of creatures can survive, such as the introduced zebra mussels who flourish on the concrete edges of docklands and canals. Canals are also unlike most water bodies that have emerged from geologic processes, in that they are shaped like rivers, but have a sluggish flow which more closely resembles that of a lake. Corbicula fluminae from the Western Pacific and Hemomyosis anomala, a small shrimp that evolves from the Ponto-Caspian region, both likely brought in ballast water, thrive in such conditions. As they fill the ecological voids of canals, they spill over into the rivers that the canals link where they may displace other species. Overall, the challenges of introduced species have only been amplified as England's inland canals have been woven together with ocean canal projects, such as the Suez, which sparked increases in transoceanic shipping and has dramatically accelerated flows of novel organisms from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean.
To return to the opening questions of this essay, it is well established that Britain's empire centered the sea. But what does it mean to say England's inland waters is also indelibly shaped by relentlessly oceanic assemblages? In taking up this inquiry, our work grapples with a challenge at once analytical and methodological. From where can one do fieldwork on the ocean? Considering the logistical challenges of doing long-term fieldwork on or in the sea, especially when one seeks to incorporate ethnographic methods such as participant observation, as well as particular modes of natural history observation, what are the possibilities of studying the ocean from its edges? not only from its shorelines, but also from the other sites to which its strong presence extends. That was anthropologist Heather Ann Swanson. This podcast has been produced in collaboration with TBA21 Academy. Please remember to check out Stage at www.stage.tba21.org. Stage's editor-in-chief is Francesca Thiessen Bornemisa. Content curator, Soledad Gutierrez. Curatorial assistant, John Aranguren. Project manager, Nina Speranda. And audio editor, Alvaro Tior. Our theme music is composed by Carl Michael von Hauswolf. I am Madeline Robinson. Thank you for listening. <coughs>